0: morning good morning good morning Uh, the children now is your moment now is your time and uh, your teachers are waiting for you bless bless those kids Lord when I see children being trained up in the ways of the Lord it fills my heart with hope and uh, it just does there's our future you know, and if we're if we're doing our if we're doing our part right, and we're imparting these the things of the Lord to the children, there'll be a perpetuity, the kingdom of God, and so anyway, bless those kids. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Brad. I'm one of the teachers here. If I haven't met you, I'm sorry. I try to get around to meet most people, but. Um, I want to take just a moment before I pray. I came to the Lord when, I I just felt the Lord prompted me to share this real quick. Uh, I came to the Lord when I was, I I don't know, I was around 29, 28, 29 years old. And I've been following him fervently for about four decades. And I love Jesus more every day. It's... uh, his marvels and his wisdom and his power never cease to amaze me. He does surprising things. And uh, when I came to him, uh, one of the things about me that I was self aware about was that I had a hard time sticking with things. And, uh, you know, I would jump from, I always, I kind of describe myself as a puppy in a field full of butterflies. I go this way and that and chase after things. And some of that hasn't gone away, but some of it has. But one of the things, one of the first things I remember praying uh, that the Holy Spirit had put upon me about the level of commitment to him, uh, and I, I won't go into all of that. That's a, a, a different testimony. But the part I want you to catch and what I want to share with you is that I realized that, that when I made my decision for Jesus, it was all in. He had helped me come to that place where I could respond to him, and I was all in. And I prayed and asked the Lord, please don't let this passion and this sense of your presence be a fleeting thing. And, you know, because I'd heard and seen people when I was trying to learn about Jesus that had maybe come to church and then had jumped ship and, had, and some of them didn't follow the faith anymore. And I saw myself really vulnerable to that. And I really think that was a work of the Spirit in me to help me, a grace added to me to help me through that. And he constantly reminds me about that. And um, and so I'm burning as hot today as I was on day one. And so I try to hold that in a little bit. Uh, so anyway, let's pray. I just wanted to share that. I don't, maybe someone would be encouraged by it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your tremendous grace and the amazing revelation that you've given us so gracefully in these scriptures. And we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. No matter how dark days get, your light shines brighter and brighter. You look better in the midst of trials and tribulation. It has some kind of clarifying work in us. I don't understand. But I'm so thankful, Lord, that when I cried out to you for wisdom, I feel like, Lord, that you have shared a little bit of that with me and opened my eyes to some of that, and I'm grateful for that. And I pray today, Lord, that you will impart something of wisdom according to the need of each hearer here. Lord, only you can do the work. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And we're powerless But, Father, you can lift up our words and carry them into the hearts of our brothers and sisters. And and that's reciprocal. And you can increase us, Lord, through the hearing of your word. Impart a spiritual gift today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've been doing this the rest of the story message. And uh, I'm kind of excited about it. We're moving through the series. And uh, we've been looking at various Bible stories that are generally well-known to everybody. Uh, We began with Cain and Abel, and uh, then the Tower of Babel. And in our third installment, we're going to look at the story of Noah and his ark. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the tale. I mean, in America, it's kind of one of those stories. You, You can't, you know, you go into any nursery uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a home, and they'll probably have some cartoonish mimicry of Noah pasted or painted on the wall with all the animals and so on and so forth. Uh, I, I mean, it's just everywhere. Everybody kind of knows the story, whether you believe in Jesus or not. People kind of understand the story of Noah, and so the familiarity of it, and because of that, we can kind of diminish the import of of the power of the story, and uh, so hopefully entering into the rest of the story, we're gonna go a little deeper. And uh, so that's kind of where we're going. Uh, for our purposes in this series, we're gonna be standing on the truths that are revealed to us in the New Testament book of John in the first chapter, verses one through five. I think they're gonna put them up, there we go. Uh, it, where it says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Now clearly these verses and those immediately following reveal that all the scriptures, the action and events contained therein, place Jesus the Christ at the very center of a large story, a single cohesive story, which we call the meta-narrative. We're going to keep beating that drum until we get this idea down. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make you turn. Well, he does, but he doesn't. <laughs> but that's another sermon. And uh, uh, but if we stand on these verses in John, let's say if we're looking on a linear plane and we look back through the scriptures, we see that God was beginning to reveal Everything is in preparation for the revealing of Jesus. And then if we turn the other direction, we look and see, and everything in the scriptures goes towards his glorification. And so this is a linchpin, this, these verses in John, this prologue. And they're, they're, they, they began to set up the story to us. So if we look back, we're seeing that God is revealing. He's preparing the world for the advent of Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures in the cohesive meta narrative are doing that. Now, it seems scattered. It seems like, a, when we look at the scriptures, it seems like a whole patchwork of stories written in different cultures and different ways. And it's kind of like in a mosaic form until we come to this place of clarity where we look through the life of Jesus Christ and we see, oh my gosh. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. A lot of times people think Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of new doctrine and stuff and created Christianity. You'll probably read some of that. That's hogwash. Paul stood on John. <laughs> he did what I'm telling you. He looked back and all he did was reinterpret the Scripture through the lens of the advent of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so that's kind of what we're going to try to do a little bit today. And so anyway, if we look... Uh, Well, with all that in mind, let's take a look at Noah, the boat builder. We find Noah's story in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 6 through 9. The basic storyline goes like this. All the humans have digressed into complete disorder through sin. Whereas the creation story found in chapter 1 of Genesis, it shows that God created everything to function properly in his divine order. Oftentimes when we read, I ran into this a decade ago or two maybe, I wanted to write a devotional about fathering and fatherhood and stuff like that, of course, as I I thought, well, I'll just start with Genesis. And so I started to take a serious look at the book of Genesis, all of a sudden I started to recognize it didn't make any sense. Everything's not in order there. I thought it was, you know, I I mean, I don't know, I'd read it so many times, I was astounded that I didn't see it. But it's like... There's light, but there's no sun. There's days that begin at night. and there, I mean, everything is upside down. It, I mean, it's kind of, but when you look at it through this lens, and what I was trying to do was look at it from a scientific perspective, the way I understand logic and reason in the world. And when I tried to read the ancient scriptures and put that worldview, like looking through that lens, everything looked kind of confusing, and there were lots of questions that came up and so as I started to research that more I started to realize that it wasn't really about that at all I needed a different paradigm and it took quite a few years for me to stumble into it and what basically I came to find out as I started doing actual intelligent pursuit of of interpreting the scriptures is that it's temple language it's about the story is about a God creating a place of habitation, which is a temple. That's what we call a temple. And so when God puts together this thing, he puts it together in order so that it functions properly. And on the seventh day, it says in Genesis, the first story, that God went in and he rested. And so here we begin to see this heavenly realm and this earthly realm, and they come together. And they come together in a place called Eden. And there's an overlap there. There, you know, it's and so now man is there in the middle of it, and as long as man uh, concurs, is probably the best word, with the divine order, the way God made it. There's just blessing. There's all this blessing in Eden. There's this like a perfect world, and so when Adam and Eve chose to sin, what they basically did was pull themselves out of that divine order, and so that's what sin does. Sin leads us into a disordering of God's divine order. Now, we've heard this from the pulpit. If you've been coming here for a while, you'll hear this from Adam quite a lot. And and this is so true, and this is so important to understand. And so if we're going to have reconciliation, it follows suit that there's going to have to be a restoration of that divine order. And so that's where we're at. So man was to exercise authority over the earth, insubordination to the Lord. In Eden, heaven and earth experience an overlap, as I've said, or adjoining. In the fall, Adam and Eve separated themselves by violating the boundary of God's authority, doing so by entering into the angelic rebellion represented in the form of the serpent. The divine order was affected. The result was exile from the garden. The next five chapters of Genesis tell the story of mankind's attempt at survival in a cursed Which means weakened environment. You'll remember in Genesis 3, God cursed the earth for man's sake. He didn't curse it to retaliate, he did it for man's sake. He weakened. And so, what we have, they gather together, the people go out, and we have five chapters, and you kind of, hopefully, you know this story a little bit. Uh, what we it tells is the story of mankind's attempts at survival in a weakened environment. They gather together, they build cities, invent technologies, arts, and so on. All very Darwinian in nature. Now what do I mean by that? Basically Darwin comes up with survival of the fittest. The tough guy wins. And so what we have is we have all of these powerful Players that are mentioned quickly in passing in the scriptures that rose up and built cities, characters like Nimrod and so on. They're, they build cities and they introduce technologies and all of it was designed for survival and basically survival of the fittest and the most powerful and the whole network created this incredibly oppressive situation. And it was all moving very much away from God's intended uh, Uh, effect for his creation. The powerful rose up by any and all means, subjected the powerless at will. They were not bearing the true image of God. We were created to image God, God's goodness, God's divine order, God's character, his person, everything, all of it. That's what godliness is. And um, so anyway, we've moved away from that, but they rather began to image uh, more of some foul and violent God. And all of the various religions that they created were all weaponized and designed for the control of people. And we have like, you know, hardcore players that just declare themselves sons of God and rule over people and all of the religions are even polluted and are taking people more into oppression and captivity and enslavement which is not the freedom that God designed and desired for his people in the presence of God there is freedom it doesn't matter the outside circumstances that we're involved in you cannot, You can, there is nothing, no one that can resist the movement of the Holy Spirit in an individual soul's life, that is freedom anyway i give you that one So, God took notice in Genesis 6, verse 5 through 8. And then I'm going to have a, I'm going to just make a few comments about this passage before I read Genesis 6, 9 through 22, that we'll work from. And in Genesis 6, 5 through 8, it says, And the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So, the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing. All the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even, in the, birds, even the birds of the sky, I am sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. And so what we have here is this, the scriptures are using story to show us the depth of God's grief and his sorrows and yet there's this this one guy Noah that finds favor with the Lord so now keeping in mind what I've set up above evil and I tried to preach the first time I ever preached in this church several years many years ago uh, I tried to deal with the theological element of evil when if you go do a serious study on it you won't get a theologian to commit on what it really is They'll just kind of leave it like, we see it, (laughs) we don't really get it, (laughs) you know, what it is, but they're better men than me. I'm going to take a stab at it. So this is me. When I got to the end of that study and in that sermon, I made a declaration that evil is a boundary violation. It is a violation of God's established order. Anything that goes contrary to God's perfect character and will is evil. God alone is good. This is what Jesus said. God alone is good. And we've all been affected by this. And whatever evil is, you know, and even Jesus says, you know, he called us evil. And the reason why is because we fall short of the glory of God. None of us if we want to compare ourselves, we know this. If we want to compare ourselves to the perfect reflection of God in Christ Jesus, we see ourselves falling short. And all of that is what evil has done to us, and evil that, you know, if we act it out or act outside of those boundaries, the act becomes an evil act. And so. It's really important. The other part of this story that's really important, it says that Noah found favor. Now, favor is grace. It's God's, uh, Alan used to say, grace is God's like. He likes us. That's kind of, that's one of them Alanisms you have to really think about, you know? There's a whole boatload of experience and information tied onto it. When I first heard it, I thought, that don't sound right. You know, but as I thought about it, I thought, he's right. And what it is, what what it is, God's divine favor is that he likes you, and and therefore he's life issues to you. And he gives you some blessing. There's blessing in the favor of the Lord. Favor is something greatly to be desired. We want to live in the place of, of God's favor. We don't want to be over here to where God's like, I don't like that, what you're doing there. This isn't good, you see, because what happens is if that happens, because he's a very loving father and really good at it, he knows how to bring just the right amount of pressure to bear to help you get back into favor. Favor is very much to be desired. So Noah found favor with God. Now, why Noah? Noah's chosen, he's an acceptable agent to bring forward God's hope. God's hope is... And and when I wrote this down, I thought, does God have hope? I mean, he gives us hope, but does he have hope? Well, if he has has an end game and he's bringing it there, then it must be a hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. I mean, God's not going to be disappointed in his own hope. He knows where he's taking us. He's going to make it happen. You see? And so God's looking through his grief. Noah finds favor. And God's hope is being carried forward. This is his seed, if you will. The seed of the future that God has planned. A certain future. Like I said, we look back, we see the revealing of, and when we look forward, we see the end and the fulfillment of God's hope, the glorification of Jesus Christ. That's his hope. And so Noah becomes his chosen, acceptable agent. Why? Why Noah? I mean, the scriptures don't really tell us much. It just kind of launches him in there, but Noah. And I start looking at it, and I'm going, well, what did he do? When you read some of the story down through 6, 7, 8, 9, you begin to see that Noah, uh, he had a a heart to obey. God told him to do things, and he just did it. So maybe that was a good thing. Maybe God looked at Noah's heart and saw that. Here's a man who will obey. And he had favor to it which enabled Noah to be able to even really follow through on it. And so here we have Noah doing that. Another thing was that he was the husband of one wife. Some people have pointed that out. And so were his children. So he must have had he must have had something in him understanding of God's divine order where these powerhouses were amassing wives to themselves, children and power. Noah was choosing a different path. He remained husband of one wife and his soldiers, his children. And so Noah was somehow as an influential person, drawing back a minute, I might be reading into this, you hold it loosely, but Noah must have been uh, he must have had some kind of a hunger for a true knowledge of God or something, and he was holding to God's uh, designed order as best he could in the culture he was in. I don't know that he was perfect. Doesn't say that in the in the story. But another thing about Noah is he didn't seem to be afraid of large woodworking projects, <laughs> which I find a lot of encouragement in. The bigger the building, the better I function. I, me and Noah were close kin. Anyway, that just for fun. But anyway, let's read Genesis 6, 9 through 22. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt, So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them out along with the earth. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out, and construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. No wooden boat has ever been built that big, except this one, ever. The closest is 345 feet, I looked. And uh, and even if that, most of them had long jibs and stuff that were out front, that they counted as length. They weren't the actual boat. And so it doesn't matter, but it's just a fun fact. But uh, the size of this arc, uh, you know, it, these are just facts that are fun for another day, uh, I mean, the whole story is full of countless things that you can tease out and find some truths and make a sermon out of any one of them all through these three chapters. But for our purposes, we're going to, you know, we'll just, we'll, we're going to bypass a little of that. Anyway, he says, leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. Look. I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat that you keep uh, with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along on the ground will come to you to be kept alive. Be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. So these key points in this story—I better keep an eye on things here. Uh, key points throughout the story uh, that we can draw—we could draw many. Details such as calendar references, numbers, all that sort of stuff. I'm going to just touch on a few as I go through. The birds that are sent out, the covenant details, all that sort of stuff is a part of the story and very important. But for our purposes, we just want to, I just want to look at three points here. One, the occasion for judgment, the flood, and the ark. We've already established the occasion, talking about the wickedness that had risen up. Everybody, the whole of mankind was corrupt. There was no good thing. It was irredeemable. God's order had come to a complete disorder. And so, sin in the world leads to self-destruction, which we see in these chapters. Given time and space and an unrestrained culture, and it will self-destruct. Apart from God's grace added in, sin quickly destroys itself. Believe you me, you're no match for the devil. You're no match for the devil. (laughs) You're not. I'm not. You're not. Uh, The powers that be, the cultural rivers, the the whole thing is so much larger than us that we'll just be soon drawn in if we don't have the grace of the Lord in our lives, his preserving power. And so uh, sin in the world, as I said, leads to self-destruction. All sin is self-hatred. been said in our church that sin makes you stupid. When you sin, you're harming yourself. When you're falling short of God's standard, no matter what it is, you're doing self-harm. I remember one time I, the Lord was challenging me. I was, I, was, I was doing all that I could to obey the Lord. I, I wanted to be a, a godly husband and uh, you know, and to love my wife properly, and to support her, and I, I was doing okay with all of that and everything. I was trying, I was growing, just like all of us are. I was in process, but the Lord gave me a little picture in my mind of an airplane with one wing, mm-hmm. spinning around like this, and I and I was like, "Wow, what a strange thought!" And he goes, "That's just how you are." He goes, "If you would, if you would." take my wife into my heart in a different way. Basically, I'm trying to make a long and short story of of a work of the Spirit in me. That I would even out and I I could fly with stability. I could find stability. So the long and the short of that whole thing was, as I pursued that, I began to understand that falling short of loving my wife was a form of self-hatred. That I was actually harming myself. Now I want to carry that over to the body of Christ. It's the same thing. When we sin and continue in our sin, we're not only acting in self-hatred, but we are also acting in the form of hatred toward our brothers and sisters. Hard word, I know. Serious word. But it's the truth. Now, Jesus pointed out that the world, whenever it got to this point, he, he talked about Noah when he was talking about a judgment. He goes... He goes, uh, you know, in the days of Noah, everybody was just eating and drinking and giving themselves. A marriage. Basically, they were living life. And all of a sudden, the flood came. And he talks about this future judgment that's going to come. And that's exactly when the return of Jesus comes. going to be just like that. going to be just living life large. You're just going to be eating, drinking, and marrying, and being given marriage. In other words, just doing life. And all of a sudden, the Son of Man is going to show up. Jesus is going to show up again. So we're supposed to be intent and watching. We're supposed to keep our eyes open and be wise. See what I mean? So anyway, when we depart from God's order, we descend into disorder. And the only solution is to unorder it. A return to chaos. And that's what the picture of the Noah's Ark and the flood is all about. What it is is that God does not destroy, obviously the Earth. So what's he talking about? In ancient cosmology, he's talking about the land that man inhabits and has authority over. He's going to bring the waters back up over it. So we're not returning we're not t- returning to a new creation, but what's happening is God is conveying, in His word, a re- what he's doing is taking. Okay, I need to square this up so you can hear me. God said man's days will be 120 years, and so what he did was he made a graceful time space, and Noah preached in that time, and then in 120 years the flood came, and so and destroyed all the flesh. So there was this forewarning of judgment, and what happens is God said he's going to bring the flood, and what it is in their minds and in their understanding and how we can best understand this is. In ancient Hebrew literature, the seas always represent chaos or the unformed thing. In the beginning, uh, it says in the beginning, the, the earth was was in chaos. And it was a void. It was a deep water. And so the ancient Hebrews have always used the sea as a metaphor of understanding about chaos, danger, unformed, chaotic existence. And that's the way they use it. And so what he does is he... He removes his spirit. I, 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 want to, I need to say this carefully. When we depart from his order, we descend into disorder, and the only solution is to unorder, a return to chaos. So what happens is, and, and I'm going to show this to you in the scripture, what God does is draws back his restraints. He removes his favor of preservation for his human people. What he does is he just draws back and allows chaos to come in. When I did my teaching on evil, I said the best theologians seem to... seem to come to this point where they recognize that somehow God's word is restraining things and setting boundaries. Like, for example, the sea comes up on the shore but no farther because God commands it, it says in the poetry. And so we get this idea that God is always constantly holding back destruction. And so all God has to do is fold his hands and it rushes in. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm trying to say a big thing, a mysterious thing in a... Simple words as best I can. And so anyway, the Lord removes his spirit. That's what I mean by that. Or his favor is a better way to say it. It's not really his spirit because nothing can exist apart from God's spirit. So that, you, you want to hear that carefully. Uh, and chaos rushes in. Revealed here is one of God's ways. What God is revealing to us is something about himself. Something that's on the, begin, the, the upswing of revealing Jesus Christ. That's going forward to the end. And so what we get here in this story, the story is a story, but God's story is underneath it. His, his message to us, his wisdom, if you will, is buried in the story. And that's what it is. And, when we, and, and the Bible tells us in Proverbs 8 to pursue wisdom. I read in Exodus where Moses, it says Moses knew God's ways. The people saw his mighty deeds, but Moses knew his ways. And that just like seized me. And I said, I want to know, know your ways, Lord. I want to be like that, where I understand the why of it. And I think that God has honored that in some respects. And so what we get is we get, we get uh, one of God's ways. He uses catastrophic endings to bring new beginnings. death is a catastrophic ending to human mortality and resurrection is a new beginning. A flood is a catastrophic ending to an age or an era and Noah becomes the promise of the new birth, a new birth. And so Death is necessary to end, a catastrophic end, resurrection, and a new beginning. And in the flood, the message is clear. God is using the medium of the waters that he has withdrawn his restraint in maintaining order and allows chaos to run in. There's a lot of popular memes on Facebook about, does God send people to hell? And probably the best interpretation of all of that, and you can hold it up to Scripture, is no, they choose it. God gives you what you want. I've had people come and ask me about, well, how would God put up with this and that? And I go, the better question is why would you want to spend an eternity with a God you don't even like and want nothing to do with now? And it's kind of stumps them, kind of stalls people when you say that, because it's yeah, why would I, you know? <laughs> Why would I want to spend time eternally with a God that I don't want anything to do with now? And so what does God do? You simply go to some place separate from him. I don't want to get into all that, but, you know, but that's kind of what happens. God just lets go. You can, I mean, we could preach a sermon on that one as well. The words that are used are the windows of heaven from above and the fountains of deep from below in the English Standard Version. After 40 days, a symbolic number of testing in Hebrew literature, the water covers everything, an earthly representation of a return to pre-creation. In a way, order is undone, and God's good earth experiences a reset or a rebirth. It should be noted here that the reset is not a return to innocence, as was experienced in Eden. Whereas the Lord dealt with the whole of humanity as one, this rebirth begins covenants. And he makes a covenant with Noah. And he begins now to deal with people in a little bit different fashion. Where they can keep covenant and God builds on that. And that's, you know, a, that's a kind of another big topic. But God changes his means at this point in time. Whereas humanity as a whole was dealt as, as a whole, now God's going to begin to to deal with individuals more personally, more, more connected through uh, agreements that can attain laws and codes and stuff. Uh, and this is how he's gonna move forward. covenants will be the means of God establishing relationship with humanity and the means of carrying forward the redemptive plan of reconciliation of all things to himself. It was wonderful how Adam talked about uh, the loving kindness of God in the Tower of Babel and just diffusing people and sending them out. I thought that was marvelous. And it's interesting that as they were set out it became a part of the preservation of humanity the confusing of the languages and so you can kind of see it again and that what he's doing is he's now gonna and, and it was and that was the the main big point i thought in that sermon was that there wouldn't been a tribe of israel for god to separate out and create a covenant with and stuff if they hadn't have gone through that motion everything builds one cohesive story like i said So the ark is God's seed for his new beginning. It's carried, it's carried in a protective vessel, sealed by God himself. It says that God shut the door and sealed it behind uh, Noah when he entered with the animals. And then after a certain period of time, God opened the ark and Noah came out and began to repopulate the earth. By understanding God's self-revelation in the story of Noah, we can follow the line of some of his activities in the forward march of the meta-narrative. We hear echoes of Noah in the preparation of Moses. When Moses was called out, there was a long period of time. Oppression had increased. Moses' chosen character. And uh, the Hebrews wouldn't miss it. He's put in a little wicker basket that's sealed with pitch and floated down the river. <laughs> and so, it's, they would immediately. The ancients would immediately link that back. And then, what happens? Noah's uh, prepared. Has a long, a long period of preparation uh, for the exodus. He's driven out. He remember he kills the Egyptians. He's driven out. He spends a bunch of time in the desert. And then, uh, at the appointed time, God comes and meets him in the burning bush and brings Moses back down. He's all prepared. So we have the same we have the same story done again, and so God's preparing for another rebirth. <laughs> He's bringing it down, <laughs> and so anyway, uh, in Exodus chapter fourteen, you can read the story, and what happens is there are judgments that come upon Egypt, and then God takes them, takes the. He takes all of the Israelites and brings them down. He could have took them. He didn't have to take them through the water. He could have took them up on the king's highway. But he didn't do that. He took them south and took them down into the, so that they had to cross the sea. And he brought their enemies up behind him so they were pressed. What an act of grace that God helped them to be courageous and to find their resolve. He took them to a point of desperation. I hope you're hearing the story underneath and making the connection. This is, this is what he's doing. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take them now through the Red Sea. And so what happens is the Lord stations himself with them. Preserving them. <laughs> they go through the water. The Red Sea. And they come out the other side. Unmistakable. And when the enemies of God come in. Those oppressing forces come in behind. The waters close over them destroying them completely. And so now <coughs> we have Israel being carried forth as the, as the seed of God. The firstborn is what it calls them in Exodus. Israel is the firstborn, my firstborn. And uh, so we have it there. We see it in the Exodus. We can see it again. We can see a graceful reminder of the story again in Joshua crossing the river in Joshua 3. And at the baptism of Jesus in Joshua 3, they're brought up. They've wandered 40 years. They're now perfected. The flesh has died off. So you can see the metaphor is slightly evolving for God's purposes as we carry it along. So Joshua leads the people through. (coughs) Passes them through the water. They would have understood the connection. And... uh, In Jesus' baptism, he comes down to the waters and he says to John the Baptist, John sees him coming and he goes, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus points up, he says, John, no, baptize me. He goes, it is to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to reflect and bring forth God's divine order. And Jesus passes through the waters and the dove comes and settles upon him. And what does he do? He goes out into the wilderness and so here we begin. We have the same story, but it's, 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 becoming, it's becoming more focused all the way through. In Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John 3, 1 through 5, Jesus challenges the rabbi's understanding by referencing this repeating truth that began with Noah, death by water, rebirth by grace. In John 3, 1 through 5, it says there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said... We all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs or evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can, a man, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assured you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus is like... He's hanging on every word. But this guy's a rabbi. He knows the stories. Water in the spirit, he knows that's a pointing back. Pointing back to the exodus. Pointing back to Noah. He knows. He's All of a sudden he's like, oh my gosh. It must have, must have really burned in Nicodemus's heart is the only thing I can think. And he, But Jesus says... Uh, humans can only reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again The wind blows Wherever it wants just as you can't hear the wind but can't and can't tell where it comes from Or where it's going so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit Noah sets before us an archetype of baptism Peter picks this up in first Peter 3 Christ suffered for our sins once for all time He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you to safety, to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but was raised to life in the Spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience there is no other means for the human soul to be absolved from guilt but the cross of Christ period I I mean God bless psychologists they help us unweave the mess of our life but they can the best that I've seen that psychology can do it cannot resolve guilt the only thing they can do is help you to pass the blame on I I, I don't, you know, but in the cross, it's a whole different thing. When you come to the cross of Christ, and this is the power of this message, oh, my God, I hope I can get there. <laughs> Help me, Jesus. My brothers and sisters, when you go down into the waters of baptism, you ended. I just should probably tie this up, and, but I want to talk a little more. But that's where I'm going, if you were wondering. A clean conscience before God. It's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Peter, preaching to the crowds in Acts chapter 2, says this. It says, "So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah." Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him, and uh, said to him and to the other apostles, "Brothers, what should we do?" Peter replied, "Each of you must repent of your sins. You must turn from your worldly ways. You must leave the cultural rivers of your current." It's a state of being in this age. Help, Holy Spirit. You must repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. There it is the cleansing conscience. Our discipleship needs to, we need to, we need to really understand these truths. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, your children of those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So now Peter is bringing the entire metaphor to a maturity, and he's telling the crowds in just so many sentences, this is how you do it. You'll pass through the waters, and you will be cleansed, cleansed of your former life, and you will experience a rebirth. And you'll see the kingdom. Foolish stuff of this world will pass away. You will overcome. This Bible says that everyone born of the Spirit of God overcomes. The question you have to ask yourself is obvious. Where do I stand? Jesus equated his own death on the cross as a baptism, saying in Mark 10 to uh, James and John. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He asked. They replied, when you, when you sit in your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to him, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I am of suffering that I must be baptized with? They said, yes, we're able. Oh, slow, slow of mind. When Jesus told him, you will indeed drink my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering... But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? Because we know these two guys didn't go and march down the Via Della Rosa and get whipped and beat by Romans and crucified. What's he talking about? He's talking about entering into the sufferings of Christ. Entering into his death and resurrection. Entering into a big theological term would be ontological experience of God. In other words, being brought into him if you want a big word. And so that's what Jesus is pointing forward to. He's calling them to this. They don't understand, but they get it after the resurrection. Paul emphatically brings the importance of un- an understanding of these truths into our discipleship. Romans 6.1 says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since you have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? How have you forgotten that when we were joined to Christ, Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. In the baptism waters, we enter into the entirety of the meta-narrative, wonderful story of God. We submit ourselves to the waters, and we are born of the Spirit and come forth in newness of life. If we want to sit there and sin, I've had people come to me and beat around the bush, and they're trying to see how far they can push God with sin. You know, most of I was dealing with college kids, and, you know, they just wanted to do the thing. (laughs) <laughs> and I <laughs> and, and, and you're like okay well <laughs> you know if you're going to sin why not just get all the way in you know and that would unsettle them they go no I don't want to do that I just want to dabble a little I just want to put my toes in the water you don't realize you dip your toes in the water there's a crocodile that's going to suck you right in all the way <laughs> or a, a dragon let's, let's say that Better than a crocodile. You know? Gonna drag you in. You want, for those of us that are born again and our eyes are open and we see the kingdom of God, sin is a form of self hatred. Why would I want to do that? (laughs) I'm sorry. We shouldn't act like the Three Stooges. Anyway. Finally, we have this, 2 Corinthians 5:17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we pass through the waters. We embrace, we embrace the truths of the kingdom, and we bring people with us. We live plainly and openly and cleanly before people. We, God has given us a way to deal with sin among us by honest confessions, gentle, kind restraint, a community that speaks into our life and helps us to see when we're wayward or crossing a line or dipping our toes the gentle restraint. Is it uncomfortable? Yes, at times. So what? The alternative is terrible. And you will, And if you want to continue in sin, believe you me, your life will be on a path to disorder and destruction. I, I can't, I'm, just, I'm, I'm trying to be as, just as loving and kind as I can in all this, but it's, these are. this is so important. This is a big story that cost God a lot. If you think God's heart wasn't breaking when he destroyed all of mankind, you are wrong. If you think that God's heart wasn't broken when he brought those judgments upon Egypt, this wonderful empire of, 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 of people, he was concerned about a few people in Nineveh. When Jonah went there he says it in the scriptures it cost me something to redeem you to redeem you and me cost blood of his son his very own life on a cross but if we'll come he'll cleanse us he'll empower us in closing there's power in knowing the deep truth in a meaningful way about our baptism our former life was done away with and we no longer live to ourselves period We now live in the reality of the kingdom of God and according to its power, precepts, and prerogatives. We assumed a new identity, a new and helpful future, a new purpose. We were baptized into Christ and sealed by God's Holy Spirit and will certainly be preserved into the new age. And now you know the rest of the story. I'm done. Sorry, I went a little bit long.